Memory is a funny and fickle thing. Maybe you've taken one of those quizzes on Facebook or somewhere about the Mandela effect and wow, mind blown, and then on to the next piece of content. But the mental mechanisms behind memory, which inform the conspiracy-minded, also have other more far-reaching and serious consequences for the rest of us. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The Mandela Effect Nelson Mandela died in a South African prison somewhere in the late 70s or early 80s, possibly as a result of tuberculosis or possibly by being beaten to death by apartheid prison guards. And yet, as we all know, he walked out of Victor Verster Prison, a free man after 27 years behind bars on February 11, 1990. And this event was broadcast live on television all over the world and then he would go on to become the president of South Africa, finally dying in 2013. So how can both of these things be true? A woman who writes about ghosts named Fiona Broom with an E, she calls herself a ghost historian and a paranormal consultant, was at a conference and started chatting with some people about, hey, remember how Nelson Mandela died sometime in the early 80s? And the people she was talking to agreed, yeah, yeah, he had died. And then, sometime later, she sees something in the newspaper that Mandela is, in fact, not dead. But she remembered, specifically, him dying. And those people she spoke to also had the same memory. So, what the, what heck, the heck was going, was going on? on. In 2009, she created a website to promote this and other examples of similar weirdness in what she called the Mandela Effect. She's the one who coined the term. People started contacting her with more and more examples of things that they clearly remembered one way, but then later turn out to be completely different in reality. Like American evangelist Billy Graham dying around 2005 or so, except that he didn't. He retired in 2005, and then in 2007 his wife died, and that funeral was televised, but Billy Graham himself lived until 2018. Some people said they specifically remembered seeing Tank Man, who stood in front of the tanks on Tiananmen Square in 1989, being run over by those tanks, except that he was not. Sometimes the death got undone. As late as 2018, many people claimed that Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon, was still alive, even though he died in 2012, and apparently just some people didn't notice. 
And let's not forget the crime of the century, or one of the many things dubbed that, the Lindbergh baby way back in 1932, right? Sad. That case was never solved, except that it was. 20-month-year-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was kidnapped on March 1, 1932. His body was discovered in a clump of trees by the side of the road on May 2nd by a delivery man who pulled over to take a pee. German-born carpenter Richard Hauptmann was arrested in the Bronx on September 19th trying to flee, went to trial January 3rd, 1935, and was found guilty and executed by electric chair on April 3rd, 1936. But there was at the time a conspiracy theory floating around that the New Jersey police had faked all this in order to cover up the fact that they couldn't close out this very public case. It was embarrassing for them. And so some people said, no, young Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was not killed, but actually grew up living in secret, and that Hauptmann was an innocent patsy targeted by the police to take the fall for their own inadequacies. Sometimes things weren't quite so dire. You know that famous painting of King Henry VIII holding a big roasted turkey leg? Go ahead, search the internet and try and find it. You can't because it doesn't exist. Hey, do Kit Kat candy bars have a hyphen in their name? No, they do not, and they never have. Do you like regular Oreos or double stuff Oreos? How many F's are there in double stuff? There's only one. Barbara Streisand is named Barbara, B-A-R-B-R-A, not Barbara. She got so tired of people misspelling and pronouncing her name, she even made an album titled, My Name is Barbara. But some people said, no, 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 no. Something very weird is going on here. And there were many more examples. Okay, let's play a game. I'll ask a question and then pause so you can answer, and then I'll tell you the answer. Easy, right? Okay, let's go. Did the children's book character Curious George, who's a monkey, have a tail or not? Answer, no, tail, never. Incidentally, he's an ape, not a chimp, and apes don't usually have tails. A famous family of bears populated numerous children's books, TV specials, and more. What was their name? Answer. The Berenstain Bears. Berenstain, not Berenstein or Bernstein. Named after the creators Stan and Jan Berenstain. By the way, speaking of bears, it's Smokey Bear, not Smokey the Bear. The Monopoly Man, whose real name is Rich Uncle Pennybags, is quite distinctive, looking very much like your cliché capitalist, with white hair and a white mustache and a suit with black tails and a black top hat. Does he also wear a monocle? Answer, no, he never has. This may be an example of what's known as memory reconstruction, where people have mixed elements of the Monopoly Man and Mr. Peanut, who also wore a black top hat and did have a monocle. The logo for the clothing company, Fruit of the Loom, showed a bunch of fruit, a red apple, and then purple, green, and yellow grapes. Was the fruit spilling out of a cornucopia, like a horn-shaped woven basket, or sitting on some green leaves? Answer, on green leaves, there has never been a cornucopia as part of the Fruit of the Loom logo. 
How do you spell the famous packaged meat company Oscar Mayer? Is it Oscar M-A-Y-E-R or Oscar M-E-Y-E-R? Answer, M-A-Y-E-R. And it has always been spelled that way. It's literally spelled out in the famous My Baloney Has a First Name song. The famous peanut butter is called Jif or Jiffy? Answer, Jif. People probably got Jif and Skippy peanut butters mixed up since they were often next to each other on the supermarket shelves. But now here's a second part. How many Fs does Jif have? Answer, one, not two. So it's possible that not only did the Y ending from Skippy get moved in people's memories over to Jif, but the double consonant in the middle. What is the title of the popular rom-com HBO show that ran from 1988 to 2004, starring Sarah Jessica Parker, Kim Cattrall, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon as four sexually liberated single gals living and working in New York City? Answer, sex and the city, and not in. At the opening of each episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, what did Fred Rogers sing? He sang, it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, not the, this. In the 1937 film Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the first full-length animated film, what does the evil queen say to activate her magic mirror? Answer, she says, magic mirror on the wall, who is the fairest one of all? Not mirror mirror, magic mirror. Interestingly, in the original written version of the fairy tale, she does say mirror mirror, but not in the Disney movie. In Disney TV shows and ads, did Tinkerbell write out the Disney logo in the air using her magic wand? Answer, no, she just taps the logo that's already there to make it sparkle. In the classic Warner Brothers cartoon starring Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, and others, how do you spell Looney Tunes? Answer, T-U-N-E-S, not T-O-O-N-S. Tunes, like the proper way to spell it. Should be no surprise since the other brand imprint they use is Merry Melodies. Melodies, tunes, makes sense. In the classic film Casablanca, which is full of famous lines, does Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, ever say the line, play it again, Sam? Answer, no, he does not. He says, if she can stand it, I can play it. In Star Wars, what color are C-3PO's legs? Answer, his left one is gold like the rest of him, but his right leg is silver. At the end of The Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader says to Luke Skywalker, what? Answer, he says, no, I am your father. Not Luke, I am your father. What is Tom Cruise wearing in the movie Risky Business when he slides across the floor and lip syncs to the Bob Seger song, Old Time Rock and Roll? Answer, white socks, tidy whitey underwear, a buttoned pink dress shirt, and no 
Sunglasses. In the 1994 Oscar-winning film Forrest Gump, what does the main character say about chocolates while sitting on a park bench? He says life is a box of chocolates, not life is like a box of chocolates. Mix and match. These are small discrepancies, but still, what in God's name is going on here? Are our memories just that bad, or is it something else? Like, are things things being being changed? changed? Could this be through parallel universes overlapping? Or maybe we live in a simulation and the code is being rewritten. I mean, because honestly, what What the the hell? hell? You're going to tell me that homophobic quick-service chicken vendors Chick-fil-A have always had a K in their name because I distinctly remember it being spelled C-H-I-C-F-I-L-A. It might even be evil multidimensional beings screwing with us, or some fear the result of nerdy experiments at CERN that have actually fractured reality. There are some claims out there of people saying that they distinctly remember certain things has happening on September 22nd, 2008, and certain things happening the next day on the 23rd, but when they go back to check on them, they find things have been flipped Like there was a school shooting in Finland that they remember happening on the 22nd, but now all the newspapers say happened on the 23rd. Or that big band singer Connie Haynes died on September 23rd, but actually she died on September 22nd. And then these people say, you know what else happened on the 23rd? Why the Large Hadron Collider, or the LHC, at CERN was turned on, and this warped the space-time continuum, causing the 22nd and 23rd to transpose and started a chain of events that we're still experiencing and noticing today. Which is a great theory, except that the LHC actually went into operation on September 10th, and on September 23rd it was shut down because one of the magnets had failed. Here's one that got Twitter in a huge uproar. In the 1990s, there was a film called Shazam, starring African-American comedian Sinbad playing a genie who wore a gold turban, gold pointy shoes, and purple clothing. Except that there was not. There was a film that came out in 1996 called Kazam, starring Shaquille O'Neal as a 5,000-year-old genie. And Sinbad was in a film the same year called Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he didn't play a genie. Some people even claimed that they didn't go see the Shaquille O'Neal film Kazam because it was such an obvious ripoff of Sinbad's Shazam. Again, there was no film called Shazam made in the entire 1990s starring Sinbad or anyone else. One man claimed that he worked for a video store and he distinctly remembers ordering the film for the store and then having to watch it many times because they had to check the tape for damage when it came back. He was so convinced his memories were accurate, he offered a $1,000 reward on Craigslist for anyone who could produce a copy of this Shazam movie with Sinbad in it. No one has claimed the money. Sinbad himself has repeated multiple times on Twitter that no, he was in no such movie, though once he did make a joke that his performance was so bad, he convinced people he knew high up in the government to remove all physical copies of the movie from the world and do mind control stuff on the public to forget them. He also later then further joked saying they got all but three copies of the videotapes and whoever has those should expect assassins to kill them soon. This joke unfortunately backfired a bit because some people took him at face value or thought maybe he was in on the whole evil plot, whatever it was. 
A few years later, he remembered that around that time he had hosted a Sinbad movie marathon for a TV station, and there he dressed up like a genie. Maybe that image got mixed up with the Kazam movie in people's minds? Also in 1996, Sinbad was in another film called The First Kid, and on many videotapes for rent, there was a preview added to the beginning of the tape for the Shaquille O'Neal film Kazam, so maybe people put Sinbad movie plus Kazam trailers starring Shaq, and they weren't really paying much attention, or maybe they were smoking a lot of marijuana or whatever, and they somehow mixed the two up. Conflating things is one explanation for at least some of this stuff. Somebody misremembers something, they spread the error, and pretty soon a bunch of people have the same, quote, memory. Woody Allen wrote a play that was also turned into a film called Play It Again, Sam, about a guy who loves the movie Casablanca, and maybe Woody made a mistake, or maybe that's supposed to be part of the joke, that this Casablanca superfan misremembers one of the most famous lines of the movie, and then other people see that title, Play It Again, Sam, think it's the real line, and overwrite their memories of the actual line from the film. Same thing with Luke, I'm your father. Vader says, no, I am your father, but shortly after that, he says Luke repeatedly through a pretty cool mind meld sort of sequence, and you know, James Earl Jones has this phenomenal voice, and the memory of that deep resident Luke combines in our memories with the shock reveal earlier, and voila, a false memory is born. Then we hear someone say that same mistake, which they made independently. This reinforces our own mistaken memory, and so what we take as confirmation just reinforces an error. The error then becomes part of our cultural memory, reinforced periodically by other people who unwittingly make the same mistake. So as HAL 9000 says in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, this sort of thing has cropped up before and it has always been due to human error. Plus, use Occam's razor. I mean, what's the easiest explanation? That we misunderstand how our minds and memories work or that someone is going around rearranging the actual physical universe but limiting most of their interference to company logos, processed food company jingles, and lines from movies, and a few deaths. What's probably going on with the zero point here, Nelson Mandela, is that another black South African political prisoner, Stephen Biko, was beaten to death in prison in 1977. Nelson Mandela was not really a household name for most Americans, but Biko got a lot of press. Singer Peter Gabriel wrote a haunting song called Biko for his 1980 album, Melt. The Richard Attenborough film Cry Freedom, released in 1987, three years before Mandela got his freedom, was about Stephen Biko, played at the time by rising star Denzel Washington, who got his first Oscar nomination for supporting actor for his work in that film. So people probably got the two mixed up. And rather than an alt-universe Mandela being pulled into our universe to replace the one the prison guards had killed, people just made a mistake. Like Mr. Peanut's monocle ending up on the Monopoly Man in Memories or Skippy Peanut Butter's double consonant and Y somehow getting attached to memories of looking at the Jif Peanut Butter label. Sometimes the mind just fills in what it thinks things should be like, sort of like an overzealous autocorrect. I mean, after all, why can't things be the way we expect them to be? Why doesn't Barbara Streisand spell her name the normal way? Many of us, me included, distinctly remember learning as children that chartreuse is a shade of purple and puce is a shade of green. But actually, those two things are reversed. 
Possibly, we encountered both new words and colors close to each other in time and then conflated them. Language teachers see this sort of thing happen all the time with students. For example, they might learn the English words here and there on the same day in the same lesson. They mix the two words up, and if that mistake doesn't get corrected, teachers call it a fossilized error, which then takes lots of work to correct. So it's possible we're all walking around with tons of fossilized errors in our heads about things that have happened or that we've seen. However, try to prove conclusively that the universe isn't being changed from time to time in tiny, trivial ways. You can't. And many people would rather believe something truly outlandish like that than believe that their mind plays tricks on them with alarming regularity. Plus, you know, people who quote-unquote remember how things were before they changed, that Looney Tunes once was spelled T-O-O-N-S, well, they get to feel special because they remember things, quote, correctly, while most people have been hoodwinked Dark City style. The sheep will go around saying Nelson Mandela died in 2013 because they've been programmed to think that because they're just not strong-willed enough to resist. But those few who remember the, quote, truth, well, they have unusually strong minds and wills. And these strong-minded people remember the universe where puce was a type of green and not this fake or altered universe where puce is a type of purple. Absolutely, Absolutely confabulous. Social scientists David Dunning and Justin Kruger wrote a paper in 1999 on a cognitive bias they found in some humans that may come into play here. First off, people tend to assess their own level of competence higher than everybody else's, including people close to them. And this is called the better than average effect or illusory superiority. We all think we're experts and we all think we're the smartest monkey in the room at any given time. This bias makes it hard for people to objectively analyze their own performance and see mistakes they have made in reaching certain conclusions. I think we all know who I'm probably talking about here. But Dunning and Kruger found that this is especially true in people who have a low skill level in something. So, a person who's a pretty okay cook will probably assess themselves in the middle, skill level-wise, you know, better than you, but, you know, average in the world of cooks. But there's a very good chance that a person who is a terrible cook may actually think that, rather than that, they are a fantastic cook, maybe one of the greatest cooks ever. This is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, named after these two guys. This leads to things like people making bad decisions, choosing careers that they are spectacularly unsuited for, and even endangering themselves or others because they vastly overrate their skill levels. Like, I can totally pass that car at high speed because I know I'm an awesome driver, when in fact that person is a terrible driver. Keep in mind, this is about competence, not intelligence. Though some writers and commentators think it might also apply to some truly, truly stupid people thinking that they are actually super smart. Interestingly, Dunning and Kruger also found that people who are high achievers often have the opposite assessment. They're very good at some things, but they assess themselves as having low skill levels. This is known as imposter syndrome. So many of the poorest performers in a field of endeavor think they're actually at the top, and many of the top performers think they're actually in the low, middle, or near the bottom. So it's the two ends of the bell curve that you have to watch out for. All of this brings to mind the line from the poem, The Second Coming, by W.B. Yeats, describing the state of the world in the days before the end times. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Mm-hmm.
Confabulation is the remembering of events that did not actually happen, like that there's a 1990s film called Shazam starring Sinbad. During the satanic panic of the 1980s, many people had, quote, memories of being involved in devil-worshipping rituals and suffering abuse at the hands of cultists, and yet none of that actually happened. This sort of thing can especially happen under hypnosis. The mind is put into a suggestive state and false memories can be easily implanted either on purpose or accidentally by the hypnotist. So say there's a session by someone who thinks that maybe they've been abducted by aliens. They go to a hypnotist, but most hypnotists won't touch a case like this. So they end up going to a person who is a specialist in this particular kind of memory retrieval, who has, quote, helped hundreds recover their memories. In short, someone who's a true believer who already has a fully formed detailed mythology about the aliens, what they look like, what they do, and so on. So the hypnotist will ask leading questions. The patient then visualizes the things that the hypnotist says, then follow-up questions reinforce the visualizations, which are fictions, and pretty soon the person has, quote, recovered memories of things that certainly didn't happen. Like, it's dark, it's dark. There's, there's somebody, somebody with, with, me. with me. I don't, I know, don't who. know who. Can you see them? No, I no. can't. Are you sure there isn't a bright light? Yes, yes there is there a bright is light. A bright it just, light. Came, it just on. came on. Oh, oh it's, oh, so, it's bright. so bright. It, it, hurts, it to hurts to look, to at, look it. at it. Can you see the creatures now? Yes. yes. Are they short, gray, with big almond-shaped eyes and four fingers? Yes. yes. Are they giving you a medical examination? I'm on, I'm a, on table, a table, strapped, strapped down. down. Are they putting an instrument somewhere? Yes, yes they're looking, they're looking, in, looking my in my eyes. eyes. Are they also putting another instrument somewhere else? Maybe somewhere lower, like around the backside? What? 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 No, what are they what doing, are they doing, doing to, me? to me? No! 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 You get the picture. Butt stuff. The hypnotist already thinks aliens are small, gray, have big almond eyes, and conduct medical experiments on humans in bright rooms by putting things up their butts. By the end of the session, the patient thinks that as well, and that they have experienced this firsthand. Now, obviously, this is an extreme case, but even more responsible users of recovered memory therapy that don't even involve hypnosis can result in recovered memories that are at least partly true and partly not true, and it is often impossible to tell which part of the memory is which. When it comes to the Mandela effect, it all seems to be about memory. So what exactly are memories and how are they formed? The, the art, art of, attention. of attention. Memory is when the brain acquires, stores, retains, and retrieves information. We experience something with our senses. That information encodes as electrical signals in a certain pattern. That pattern of signal goes into short-term or working memory. If there's a high emotional content to the memory, or something that's very new or unexpected, it will move into long-term memory, which is sort of the storage vaults. Otherwise, we have to interact with the memory and short-term memory to some degree, or it will not get moved to long-term memory and we'll just lose it. When we recall things from long-term memory, they move back into working memory so they can be interacted with. However, interacting with the pattern changes the pattern and the changed version overwrites the old one. So the new altered pattern is the one that goes back into storage. We literally change our own memories or have them changed by outside forces. We do not, as most of us think, simply record things like on film or video. The act of watching the memory play back can change the memory permanently. 
Now, everything in long-term memory storage is linked together, kind of like a book made entirely of hyperlinks, which makes retrieval easier. Sometimes the memory being encoded has certain associations or meanings associated with it, which is called semantic memory. Memories encoded along a particular space and time plane are called episodic memory. A happened, then B happened, then C. When an episodic memory is specifically about us, it's called autobiographical, and it helps form our idea of who we are. If an event is highly emotional or unique, it's sometimes known as a flashbulb memory, and that tends to lock in the overall pattern pretty quickly. You know, like how everybody kind of knows where they were and what they were doing when they heard about the WTC attacks in 2001. Each of these types of memories tend to form certain types of connections and association with other memories in storage. Now, all of this work is done in the medial temporal lobe system, which includes the hippocampus. This organ sits right next to the amygdala, which regulates our emotions, so highly emotional memories tend to get encoded stronger. We live life in a one-time direction, and retrospective memory is about things that happened in the past. And this is what most of us mean when we talk about memory. I remember things that happened. But we can also think of things that haven't happened yet to make plans for the future. This is called prospective memory. These sorts of memories could be time-based. So for example, I see a clock, it's three o'clock, and I suddenly remember, oh, I need to go pick up the kids at school because seeing the clock and the time triggered the memory of my intention to go get them. Or they can be event-based, like I see a picture of a cupcake, and then I remember, oh yeah, my kid's birthday's coming up, and she, he wants cupcakes, and I need to go buy the ingredients. These are called associative triggers, and you can consciously index things in working memory to become memory triggers for future intentions. For example, my wife often has a really great idea while drifting off to sleep at night, so she'll throw a sock that's nearby into the bedroom doorway, indexing it with the memory of that thought. Then in the morning, she sleepily sees the sock's not in the right place, and she thinks, what the heck is that doing there? And then suddenly, the memory she indexed the night before comes flooding back. Kind of like the old cliche of tying a string around your finger to remember something. This is what's known as priming, and while it can be done consciously, it can also happen unconsciously, which means that one memory could trigger another memory, even though you never consciously intended for those two memories to be linked. Essentially, we have three main markers for memories, emotion, place, and narrative. Emotion tends to focus us on things more, and things that are focused on get the strongest memory encoding. Narrative is especially important since episodic memory forms so much of the basis of our self-identities. We tell stories to ourselves about ourselves and the world around us and our place in the world around us, and it's much easier to remember a story than, say, memorize a list. As an episode of the Netflix series The Mind Explained says, not many people have memorized the value of pi to more than a thousand digits, but many, many people have memorized all of Hamlet's lines, and he has 1,569 of them. This is because narratives are easier to remember, because one thing follows another logically, like how life is lived. There's an old memory technique used by lots of big brains and the fictional character Sherlock Holmes called the memory palace. You imagine a physical space like a huge mansion with many rooms and you place representations of things you want to remember in different rooms. Things that go together go into the same room. You then imagine yourself walking through that space and the act of moving forward episodically creates a narrative and that is easy to recall. 
As said before, most conscious remembering takes place in working memory, which means new associations and connections can be made. But that also means that memories can be altered, written over, and changed. And this happens all the time. It's estimated that while the overall general structure of a memory remains pretty much intact, the details get changed by as much as 50% every year. You probably don't remember as many of the details as you think you do. You remember the things that happened that you were focused on, but not the more trivial things like what socks were you wearing when you learned that your city was going into lockdown. And yet, the brain needs to fill in the blanks and have a complete picture. The writer Robert Anton Wilson said once that what the thinker thinks, the prover proves. It's almost like there are two mechanisms in the brain. One part that says, this is probably right. And another part that says, like a good lieutenant, okay, then that is right. And starts to marshal resources to make that a fact. So you don't remember what socks you were wearing right now on the first day of your lockdown, but if you retrieve the memory into working memory where it can be manipulated and you start to imagine different socks, you can actually rewrite that memory so that suddenly the memory has a very clear image of you wearing your funny bacon and egg socks. That then becomes part of the new memory which gets stored and you will have a very hard time convincing yourself otherwise in the future. We humans are interesting because we also have external memory systems, collective memory. This is other people writing, still and moving images, audio recordings, and even the internet. We can update our memories using information that comes from one of these sources in addition to the things that we directly experience. So like you might hear from a friend that a Persian restaurant you like has gone out of business, so you update your memory about that place without actually having to physically go there and see for yourself. Some collective memory gets filtered through cultural lenses of the social group or groups we belong to and identify with. Subjective values and biases bleed into the memories and memory associations and, well, what the thinker thinks the prover proves. So if Annie is watching Justin Bieber in a video and sees a brief video glitch around his eyes, she thinks, hmm, weird video glitch, and probably doesn't even code that detail for memory storage and later retrieval. But Marcus sees it, and he already thinks Justin Bieber is a shape-shifting reptilian, so he does notice the glitch. He focuses on it, thinking, aha, that's Justin's weird alien lizard eyes peeking through his disguise, and he indexes that as part of the memory. Later, Marcus goes on to his lizard watch BBS and notices other people saw the same thing, so his memory gets reinforced by external sources. After a while, it seems so obvious to Marcus and his pals that Justin Bieber is a lizard that he can only assume that people who say that they don't see it are either stupid or lying. But this rewriting of things can happen with any memory, regardless if there's a pre-existing bias or not. Take a woman named Melanie Magnucci, who was in school on September 11, 2001. She distinctly remembers sitting in her classroom and looking out the window at the smoke billowing up from the Twin Towers after the first airplane struck them. This is an important, highly emotional memory, so it's quite vivid and easy for her to recall. And yet... Her mother reminded her that, first off, her classroom didn't face towards downtown Manhattan, which was 40 miles away, and also the smoke was being blown by winds in the opposite direction. So even if she had been able to look at downtown Manhattan, which she didn't, she wouldn't have been able to see any smoke. And yet, she distinctly has the memory of doing just that. 
Probably what happened is she saw images from TV footage that hit her emotionally the same way that hearing about the news of the attacks did when she was in her classroom, and the brain mixed the two things up in working memory, and then when they got stored in long-term memory, the memories had been overwritten and changed. So now she remembers seeing smoking buildings, and yet it never happened. Memory and imagination are inextricably linked. It's how we plan for the future, which is what makes our species so successful. But that same mechanism also means that we cannot always trust our memories of the past. At its heart, memory is a simulation game. Justice, Justice is, blind. is blind. Neil deGrasse Tyson once said, No matter what eyewitness testimony is in the court of law, it is the lowest form of evidence in the court of science. We trick ourselves surprisingly easily. This is one reason eyewitness testimonies are notoriously unreliable. DNA evidence continues to clear people who were found guilty based on memories people had, either onlookers or victims. The Innocence Project has reported at least 329 such cases between 1989 and 2015. That works out to one per month for 26 years, and those are just the ones the Innocence Project has managed to find out about. Some experts estimate that as many as half of all criminal convictions, based mainly or solely on eyewitness testimony, result in a wrongful conviction. In 1980, a guy named Robert Buckout conducted an experiment and wrote it up in a paper titled, Nearly 2,000 Witnesses Can Be Wrong. He got a local TV station to play a video clip he'd made to 2,145 people in their homes and included some police on duty at their police stations. The 13-second clip showed a man in a hat run up behind a woman, knock her down, and take her purse. The robber's face was visible for three and a half seconds. The announcer then asked viewers to help them identify the man, and six faces were displayed, each with a number under them. People could call a phone number and say which number they thought was the criminal, or if none of the faces were the correct man, they could say that. The largest number of people calling in, 25%, chose the last option. The man they saw was not one of the six being displayed. The rest of the people chose different numbers, though one, two, and five got the most votes. But the correct number was number two but only a small number of people accurately identified the correct man. Buckout thought maybe the shock of the crime made recalling details difficult, or in his words, uniqueness is overshadowed by the conditions for observations. Maybe put that a different way, highly surprising or emotional events lock in the general pattern, focusing on that and details get missed. When people witness a crime, for example, police will often tell those people not to talk about the events before they can be officially questioned. This is because each person's recounting of the events will infect the other witnesses and actually change their memories. This is known as post-event misinformation events. This is because it is not the eyes that see, but the brain, as a 2011 article in Plaintiff Magazine titled The Utter Unreliability of Eyewitness Testimony says. There's a great video of an experiment conducted by Dr. Robert Gutentag at UNC Greensboro on his psych class that shows very clearly how bad we are at remembering details from surprising events. Check the dedicated playlist for this episode on our YouTube channel for that. To add to these quirks of the human mind, the pressures of our shared collective memory. It's easy to convince someone they saw or heard something that they did not simply by getting them to recall the memory into working memory and then getting them to imagine the details differently, which, as I've said before, changes the memory and then it gets restored. 
This could be done on purpose, so-called gaslighting, or it could happen accidentally. Police on a case may already have a narrative in their minds as they try to solve it as quickly as possible and might inadvertently influence witnesses to change their memories to be more in line with the story they've created. But usually, we just do it to ourselves. How many people have seen an Onion or a Clickhole article and thought it was real because they didn't clock the actual source? They just saw the big, bold headline type. They remember seeing the article, assume it must have been on a credible website, and then spread it as if it's a fact. Like the article that said that the remains of 15 hobbits were found in Peter Jackson's attic, which prompted at least one Twitter user to say he was a monster, and they were not kidding. Or that Serena Williams had been stripped of all her tennis titles because it had suddenly been discovered that she's been playing with a racket in each hand this whole time. Obvious jokes, but people didn't focus on the source, just the headline, and that's all they remembered. People comment on it and share it, also thinking it's a real article, and then the content-hungry machine that is the internet writes stories about people mistaking the satire for actual news, and those really are legitimate news sources, but once again, people see a satirical headline, they see the credible source, they don't bother to read the article, which is about people making a mistake, and the whole cycle starts again. And pretty soon, the origin in the onion is lost to all but the most committed of desktop detectives. When it comes to the Mandela effect, we probably haven't really focused on whether there's a hyphen in Kit Kat or not, but we suppose there must be, or maybe we read an article somewhere that uses a hyphen when typing out the name of the chocolate-coated wafer snack, and so the next time we recall seeing the Kit Kat packaging, we mentally insert that hyphen into the working memory. Then later we come across an actual Kit Kat bar, and for whatever reason we focus on the packaging, and lo and behold, there's no hyphen! Most people will probably think, that's weird, I thought it had a hyphen, but I guess either they changed it or my memory is wrong. But a few of us take a different route. My memory is infallible, and so something has been changed on all Kit Kat wrappers everywhere simultaneously. And since that is logistically impossible, the explanation must be that these hyphenless Kit Kat bars are from another universe where they don't have a hyphen. And then that opens up a whole raft of new questions like, how did these hyphenless Kit Kats get here? Was it done on purpose? And if so, by who and why? The only other explanation that makes any kind of sense is that we are, in fact, living in a simulation and the code has been altered, but somehow the rewrite didn't take 100% with me, probably because I'm so smart. People who go down either of those two rabbit holes are probably down near the bottom of the percentiles when it comes to things like logical reasoning, but then the Dunning-Kruger effect comes into play and they actually think that they're among the best at those things, and so anyone who questions them is either in on it or a fool, and in either case, can be easily dismissed. The easiest answer, of course, knowing what we know about memory, is that the person just remembered it incorrectly. After all, this happens all the time. The problem for some criminal cases is that the system can sometimes rely on memories of events that happened fairly far back in the past and for which there's no physical evidence, like in many Me Too allegations coming out now about events that happened 10, 15, 20 years previously. And memory, as we've seen, is not really very terribly reliable. So what's to be done? The only thing the courts can do is listen to multiple testimonies, and if many different people say pretty much the same things, then there's probably a pretty good chance things really did happen that way. Except, even that might not be accurate. The fact is, it's hard to tell when someone is lying, even though many of us think we're good at detecting falsehoods, but in fact, study after study shows that we are terrible at it, and it's nearly impossible to tell if a person who isn't an obvious lunatic has just made a mistake or has a bad memory. 
And if a person doesn't know themselves if the memory they have is false, how on earth can someone else figure it out? Add to these muddied waters the mechanisms of belief and self-identity and group solidarity, and you have a right mess on your hands. Therefore, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that some people, when faced with the offbeat spelling of Barbara Streisand or the non-existence of a 1990s genie movie starring Sinbad, weave a complicated tale of reality itself being altered around them for unknown reasons, rather than admit they cannot trust their own minds. Because that is the scarier proposition. So if our own memories can't be trusted, what can we do? I say healthy amounts of skepticism seem in order for everything, as does regular reflection. Seek out external verification from good sources. Good sources means they don't have an agenda, they don't have any skin in the game. When something leaps out and looks like the answer, you should automatically find that insight suspect and mull it over a bit longer, certainly before taking any kind of action. Remember, the brain takes shortcuts all the time. If the insight you had is valid, surely it can withstand the harsh light of reason. If it can't, well, then it wasn't very strong to begin with. So, now I'm going to go have a big bowl of Fruit Loop cereal. And do you remember how to spell Fruit Loops? Look it up. You might be surprised. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.